0: Anine Tressler-Hauschultz, and this is Between You and I. This podcast is being brought to you by the St. Louis Psychoanalytic Institute, located in Richmond Heights, Missouri. The mission of the Institute is to further mental health and well-being through psychoanalytic education, treatment, and building community. For those who seek an understanding of emotional life, The Institute is a learning and resource center that gives insight into core human dilemmas from infancy to old age. Joining me today is Chester Smith. Mr. Smith is a psychoanalyst and licensed professional counselor with more than 30 years of experience as a private practitioner. He is also a faculty member of the St. Louis Psychoanalytic Institute and the Director of Clinical Training in the Sheely Clinic Practicum Program at the Institute. Thank you for joining me today,
1: Chester. Well, glad to be here.
0: Well, let's start off with some basics. We hear terms such as psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. They're big, and I think they can be off-putting. Can you give us a brief description of what these are and what differentiates them?
1: Sure, sure. Um, You know, I'll start out broadly. Uh, Psychotherapy is a term that really covers a range of approaches to treatment. At the Institute, we specialize in a form of psychotherapy that is psychoanalytically informed, which means it's therapy based on theory and literature in psychoanalysis. Now, let me explain the difference between psychotherapy and psychoanalysis. Um, Therapists can train at the Institute to be psychoanalytically informed therapists. Um, They can also go on to training to be an analyst. The difference is becoming a psychoanalyst is much more involved and takes more time. Uh, It's a type of treatment Psychoanalysis is that incorporates working with the unconscious mind, understanding that the unconscious mind has a big part in symptoms that we experience due to inner turmoil or conflict.
0: Very impressive. <laughs> um, <laughs> When we hear the word therapy or psychoanalysis, I, I personally go to images of Sigmund Freud and a patient lying on the couch. Um, is psychotherapy how how different is it today?
1: Great question. You know, Sigmund Freud really laid the groundwork for psychoanalysis it, to this day. It, it's very impressive. Uh, some of the the concepts and and therapeutic techniques uh, that he developed are still in use today and really provide kind of the foundation of psychoanalysis. Now, having said that, much has been written and developed on psychoanalysis since then. We have contemporary theories that take into consider a broader view of the human psyche and uh, a, a range of schools within psychoanalysis that have their own ways of understanding the work
0: tell me a little bit about your own private practice what is what is your
1: approach sure sure well i'm a psychoanalyst so i work within a psychoanalytic model my practice i've been in practice for a little over 30 years i see children adolescents and adults i'm an adult psychoanalyst and a child psychotherapist, just to complicate things a little bit, um, there are those that go on to train to be child psychoanalysts.
0: Tell me a little bit about what are the most common things, if there if there are such a thing, the reasons that people come to you for therapy.
1: Yeah among adults and what i try to do is i see uh, adults roughly half of in roughly half of my practice is adults half of it is adolescents and children in adults you see you know anxiety issues with anxiety and panic attacks depression and relationship problems um those are probably the three core things that that i see in my practice with adults with children you know, children express their emotional distress in different ways than adults do. They, they express it through their behavior. So with children, you see, you know, opposition, misbehavior, defiance, academic issues, um, all of which can be tied to uh, our topic, which is early trauma.
0: It sounds like the thing, no matter the age of the patient, would be that they're all united in the idea of suffering, and therapy is there to alleviate it.
1: That's right. That's right. You know, I'd mentioned before that there are other approaches to therapy. Uh, The psychoanalytic approach is really the only one that looks to understand the source of the distress as a way to alleviate symptoms, other approaches are much more of a symptom management type. The more behavioral approaches, where they're really looking at just finding ways to bring the symptoms under control. We see, I see a lot of people in my practice that have tried behavioral approaches and and found them lacking for various reasons, and you, you know these folks end up coming into therapy realizing that there is something going on inside of themselves that really needs to be addressed if they're going to begin to feel better.
0: I would think that um, there would be great difference. I, I appreciate the fact that you te- that you um, work with both adults and children, but I would think that the approach in, in treating children would be rather different. Can you talk a little bit about what approach you use with them?
1: Absolutely. Children are not going to sit face-to-face and talk about themselves for 45 minutes. They just aren't equipped to do that. So what child therapists have to do is kind of meet the child where they are. With the younger child, it's through play. And it's within the play that much of the work with the child occurs. And I'll give you an example. One of the areas that I work in is adoption. I have I have a a basket full of little dolls and they're set up in in terms of family members. So they have all different age ages of children among the dolls, all different ethnicities and children, uh, children who have been adopted will often use these dolls to recreate their own experience in their relations with their caregivers. And it provides a way to work through what we call displacement on the child's issues. You really have to be trained to understand play and to be able to interpret meanings of play for the child to be able to make use of it. Now, little older kids play you know—is something from their past and they're not interested in it. Art and board games can be mediums to do the work within. With, with older kids. Art is wonderful. I, I have an art table in my office with all kinds of art supplies and kids just love it. And they express what's going on inside of themselves through their art. So it gives us a way of learning about them. <sighs>
0: Let's talk a little bit about, say, the, the parent's um, perspective. I would think that if I have a child that needs therapy, and first of all, you know, how do I know for sure my child needs therapy? But I would think there'd be a lot of guilt and a sense of having failed that 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 I'm not doing enough for my child or something like that. Do you encounter that?
1: Absolutely. You know, and it's a, it, it's been written about that probably... All parents feel some level of guilt when their child is struggling. And it's really an unfortunate thing because, you know, the parents I work with tend to be all very well-intended. They're motivated, but they don't always have the tools. What I try to impress with parents is we're going to take the strengths that they have now and build on them to customize a form of parenting that fits their particular child and their child's needs. So I like to think, and I hope that the, my work with parents empowers them to feel better about their parenting. And it, you know, we're not out to vilify parents, uh, not at all. Uh, we're out to help parents to be better parents for their challenging.
0: Another question that I have, if Again, let's pretend that I'm a person who is struggling, perhaps in relationships, as you mentioned. How do I know what kind of therapy I need? Or, or maybe do I even need therapy? Should I go to the bookstore and get a self-help book? Can I, can I see someone for a couple of times and, and then have all my issues resolved? As we often see on sitcoms, right, when we're watching television, 30 right. minutes later, everything is solved, everyone's happy again. What would you say to someone who's having these questions about, what do I need? How do I know?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, because I think when someone is considering therapy, what do you do? You know, how do you find a therapist and a good therapist? That's the starting place. Let me just say that the Institute has kind of a a clearinghouse for calls. You know, the clinic turns no one away based on ability to pay, the Shealy Clinic. But if people are able to pay or have insurance that covers, we can give them names of therapists that we know the training of, we know the person through their training at the Institute. Now, as far as when should somebody consider therapy, you know, it's gonna be different for each person, but whatever their concerns are, symptoms or concerns, if they're ongoing, and by that, I mean, have been a problems for months or years, there's a very good possibility that therapy would be helpful. Many, most probably of our problems are issues that are deep-seated from early in life, and it takes time to uncover them, to work together, the therapist and the patient, working together as a team to uncover what's behind the symptoms that they're experiencing, which leads not only to healing, but growth emotional growth
0: well it sounds really encouraging as I would think for a patient it would be I'm really being seen you see me and my issues you don't just see somebody or the the idea of someone who's this person is depressed and here's what we do with depression it's really very tailored isn't it
1: yes it is. Tailored to the individual. And this is why, you know, you mentioned self-help books before. And the problem with self-help books is they're not geared to that individual person that's reading them. Even then, you know, it, it wouldn't be able to the, the the books don't offer a way of exploring what's going on inside the person. And uh, probably the large majority of my patients, past and present, have at one point or another read through self-help books uh it's often a first step before going into therapy and at some point some point people usually realize the limitations of a self-help book and that's a point that they often start thinking about therapy
0: That's really interesting and maybe if we could just stay on this topic for a moment you know I sort of brushed over the idea well what if I'm having relationship problems and I think maybe I need therapy what would be some symptoms it if you will, that a patient or a person might encounter in their own lives and say, oh, you know, this could be a red flag. Maybe I need to see somebody. Is there a a group of of symptoms or signs that that you could point to?
1: Sure. The first that comes to mind for me is uh, relationship issues. People will often come to therapy for help In being able to better relate and relate more intimately with the people in their lives, Uh, marital problems, peer relations, you know, these are impacted greatly by our earliest experiences with our caregivers. In fact, we take from our caregivers kind of a, a way of relating and a way of thinking about relationships that is very much based in those earliest experiences, good or bad. And these, uh, what Sigmund Freud referred to as transference, uh, impact how a person can or can't relate, okay? So, So that's one area. Depression is another. You know, if people are having problems with ongoing low mood, sleep problems energy problems problems motivating themselves these are all red flags for depression anxiety is another area and anxiety is i think a little more obvious in that people know how anxiety feels the thing about anxiety is it can it can also cause a range of symptoms from again sleeplessness problems with sleep agitation that may be ongoing. People report physical responses like cold or sweaty hands, which are a response to excess nervous system activity. That's also tied in with the anxiety.
0: But if I am going to therapy and I have these issues, which are obviously important enough to disrupt my current life, what What happens if I'm in therapy and we start uncovering these issues and I find it to be too painful and, you know, really what I want to do is quit and just, you know, cover it all back up and walk away. What are your insights regarding that kind of situation?
1: Let me start by saying a therapy or psychoanalysis really begins by development of a close, trusting relationship between the therapist or analyst and the patient. And it's this relationship that helps to hold the patient during the more difficult times. I say hold, I don't mean physically hold. I mean hold the patient in terms of helping them handle their emotions, especially the intense emotions that are difficult to handle. But it's within this very unique relationship that the patient is supported through the difficult time.
0: That's really reassuring. One other topic that I know often comes up when we hear about therapy is the whole idea of medication. And I know, frankly, some, some people that are friends of mine who have felt down or depressed and they go to their primary doctor and they're given a prescription for medication. They never go to therapy, but they're taking this medication often for years at a time. What are your thoughts about the importance or the use of, of medication in mental health?
1: You know, medication is a form of symptom management. I'll start with that. Medication, whether it's for depression, anxiety, uh, other mood disorders, it manages symptoms. It doesn't address the source of the symptoms, the emotional duress that is fueling the symptoms. So, It's really kind of, in my mind, it's kind of tragic when a person only gets medication, as you're describing, because the medication may help manage symptoms as long as they're on the medication, but once they're off of it, the symptoms are going to return just as they were. The other piece of this is that if they're not in therapy along with getting medication, they're really missing out on an opportunity to make some changes within themselves that might lead to them no longer having symptoms that require medication and and i will say that it's not at all infrequent that when people go through analysis or therapy uh they're able to cut back eventually on their medication and in many cases eliminate medication use because they've addressed those sources of the symptoms
0: um if you break your ankle, you're going to have a cast for a while, but you won't need it forever. Is, is that a good analogy for the, the role of medicine?
1: Yeah. You know, it, 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 it helps, the. I guess in this way, I, the way that I'm thinking it's similar to medicine is that the cast kind of holds things together in a way that that prevents pain while the healing occurs. So in that way, I think the medicine, medicine, you know, can be helpful, but it's the therapy that is really promoting the healing.
0: Another question that I have is what are the barriers that you see that people face when they are considering therapy? I don't know. Is it uh the the idea that maybe i can solve these problems on my own maybe it's too expensive maybe it'll go on forever what are you, what kind of things do you encounter
1: i think i think the biggest barrier for people to initiate therapy is fear that you know freud sigmund freud talked about resistance and he talked about resistance as being something used to avoid pain. Okay? It's human nature to want to avoid pain. Well, uh, you know, a person, person is struggling and they've had some traumatic experiences in their past. They may be very afraid of pursuing those matters. You have to get to a point, I think, where the pain that you're experiencing is such that it it overrides some of that fear. People vary a great deal in terms of what we call psychological mindedness. And what I mean by that is their ability to recognize their thoughts and feelings and to try and to understand that there may be more to them, more to understand about them. These are people that are, I think, quicker to pursue therapy. They see therapy as a natural, you know, treatment for what they're going through. And, and on this note, I think we're seeing much less of a stigma associated with therapy and mental health due to, in part, all the attention mental health is getting now in the media and, you know, everywhere. Fortunately, people are coming in with less stigma that can also really hold them back otherwise.
0: Once I have as uh, an individual with, with something I want to address, once I've decided, yes, I think therapy might be the answer for me. How do I f- even find a therapist? And, and then there's that whole idea of, is this the best fit for me? Is this the best approach for me? What things should a person consider?
1: I think, uh, uh, at least for me, a fair number of my referrals are people that have gotten my name from friends, other professionals, that kind of thing. I think a lot of people find their way into therapy and to a specific therapist even through their own network of referrals. But to have to go at it you know, without any assistance I think is is a really difficult thing to do because where do you start? Like I was saying before, you know, how do you decide what kind of therapy, let alone therapist, to consider? Well, I can say that if a person is looking for a therapist because they're aware that something is going on inside isn't quite right, needs to be understood, addressed, then they're more, you know, they, they really would do well to pursue a psychoanalytically oriented therapist who's going to work with them on what's going on inside and help them understand themselves better, which is what leads to healing and growth, better understanding of ourselves. It gives us more power over ourselves and the course of our lives. The Institute uh, is uh, a wonderful place to look for a referral. Uh, look for a therapist and you can call the Institute and and get information about, you know, therapists. And then the next step, and you mentioned this, the fit is so very important. Not every therapist is equipped to work with every person. And it's it's actually good for therapists to know their limits, know areas that maybe they don't do so well in or certain personalities maybe they don't do so well with. What I do, and I learned this years ago from a colleague, and I think I think a lot of therapists do this. I tell a person when I meet with them the first time that I, I usually like to meet meet with a person three times, and then we talk about how they feel about working with me, how whether this feels like a good fit. If it does, great. If it doesn't, I'll help them find some other therapists to interview and and. Try to find one that is the best fit.
0: It's really encouraging because I would think when a patient comes to therapy, they may be kind of fragile anyway. And these are all big decisions to make.
1: That's right. That's all right. And, you know, fragile is a good word because I think we all feel a certain vulnerability in looking inside. And if we do have things like early traumatic experiences that have been kind of buried away, it can be all the more scary because there's a sense that there's some stuff in there that's going to be hard to face.
0: One question that I have, if I'm looking for a therapist in the metropolitan area and I'm going down the list, I see a lot of different initials behind people's names. And I really don't know what to make of those. How does a potential patient sort through that? And and what do those initials even mean?
1: Great creth- question, Anine. Um, it, it can be very confusing. And the reason it's confusing is that graduate training to prepare to become a psychotherapist can be had in social work, counseling, psychology, and psychiatry. And of course, they each have their own graduate initials after their name. So that's part of it. The other piece is that each of of these uh, different professional organizations have their own licenses. And so, for instance, with social workers, they have an LCSW, which is a licensed clinical social worker. Counselors have... As, as you stated, I am licensed professional counselor, which is LPC. And then psychologists have their own licensure and psychiatry has their own way of certifying. So that's how people can actually come into therapy from you know different educational backgrounds. It, part of this is due to the fact that Graduate programs really don't train people how to become psychotherapists, let alone psychoanalysts. They really provide only the foundation, the educational foundation that's necessary for them to then begin training to become a therapist or an analyst.
0: And to me, the analogy feels like medical school. You go to medical school for four years, but you still have to do an internship and a residency so that you're really face-to-face with patients in a hands-on way.
1: That's right. That's right. And an example of this, our, our practicum program, we screen students, graduate students for the program. They're either in grad school or they've graduated, but we look for people that are very psychologically minded and understand that the unconscious is part of uh, how we or plays a big part in how we function we, you know not all therapists think in this way. so we look for for students who you know have gotten some level of understanding about the psychoanalytic approach and the depth of the approach.
0: What happens if I need therapy, want therapy, but I can't really afford it. I would think it could be pretty expensive. What are my
1: options? If you want an in-depth form of therapy, like what I'm talking about, really the only place in town is our very own Sheely Clinic at the Psychoanalytic Institute. The Sheely Clinic provides low-fee services and does not turn anyone away on ability to pay. You know, This is a place that you can go and you don't really have to be concerned about whether you can afford it or not. It will be made affordable. For other types of therapy, I really don't know well what's out out there as far as low fee services.
0: If I choose to come to the Sheely Clinic, is that for adults as well as
1: children? It's mainly for adults, we're developing work with children. We really have more work to do in training more therapists to work with kids. Interestingly, not a lot of therapists in training pursue work with children. And I I think in many cases, they're intimidated about it. And it is hard work. It's hard work, but it can be very gratifying work too. So, So getting back to your question, we have some therapists that are seeing adolescents we hope in the, in the future to have therapists that are seeing younger children as well.
0: Now, if, if I should go to the Shealy Clinic, what kind of an experience can I expect?
1: You know, it all begins with a phone call and a, uh, a, a therapist who does intakes will respond to the call and take down some initial information. And either that therapist Will then take on that person in their caseload, or they will. If their caseload is full, they'll refer to one of the other therapists. These therapists are uh, uh, clinical trainees. It's you know you mentioned residency before. It's kind of like that. You know they're in training, but they they have a foundation background in mental health, and they're closely supervised and trained. Within the practicum program,
0: you—you really answered the the question I was thinking of, which is the qualification of the person who might be seeing me in the clinic. I mean, I, you know, I can see that as a parent or as an adult coming to therapy, I would want to make sure that the person who's helping me is is qualified and is, as you said, being supervised closely and has already been screened anyway.
1: You, you know. Uh, Like, yeah, the the students are screened before they come into the program. Their work is overseen very closely. Each student trainee has uh, an individual supervisor that they meet with weekly. And they also have weekly case conference where they present cases and they're discussed among the trainees and Dr. Ozar, who is the medical director of the clinic, and myself.
0: We all know that confidentiality is very important in healthcare in general, but I would think it's particularly important in the field of mental health. Um, can you speak to that?
1: In one way, confidentiality is everything, because you really don't have treatment without it. You just you can't. If a if a patient can't trust their therapist. How can they how can they do the work with them? How can they open up, you know, and reveal things? So we take confidentiality very seriously. When when trainees present material, all identifying information is disguised. For example, we use pseudonyms, we don't use names or initials. We if a person is works at you know such and such location, the very most. That will be told will be what kind of work they do, certainly not the company or organization they work for. So confidentiality is protected every way possible.
0: If a patient is coming through the clinic and the student uh, trainee who's been assigned uh, is ready to graduate, what happens? Does, does that therapy end? Are they transferred to another person? I mean, how is that handled?
1: Since they are on a one-year training program you know at some point this is going to come up what happens when the patient or when the student excuse me graduates and what we ideally happens is the student goes to a setting whether it's in a a, another clinic or, or starts their private practice where they can take their patients with them that's the ideal situation when that's not possible we make arrangements for the patient to see another therapist should they want to continue their work. And many do. They, they, you know, make the transition. It's never really easy to do that, to move from one therapist to another. It can be actually quite difficult, but some are able to do that.
0: All right. I'd like to shift gears a bit now. I know that one of the many services of the Psychoanalytic Institute is the educational programming that it offers throughout the year to the interested general public, as well as to the professional community. Today, we're talking about the Cohn Lecture. I know that the lecture is supported in part by the Centene Charitable Foundation and was established through the generosity of Thomas and Sally Cohn in honor of Mr. Cohn's father, Isidore H. Cohn, MD, who was one of the innovators of adolescent and group psychotherapy in New York. Chester, I know that you'll be delivering the Cone Lecture in April of this year, and the title of your presentation is Trauma, How We Are Damaged, and What Can Be Done About It. Could you offer a little bit of a preview of the content that you're going to address in that lecture?
1: Let me begin by addressing the first part of your question about the educational programming of the Institute. You know, the Institute is first and foremost a learning center. In fact, its beginning in 1956 was actually called the St. Louis Psychoanalytic Foundation and later became an institute once it was certified to train psychoanalysts. And the mission of the institute has always been to train psychoanalysts. Now, we have expanded and we also treat Uh, excuse me, trained psychotherapists now. We have a two-year psychotherapy training program that is open to people with at least a master's degree in mental health fields. But let let me go back and and clarify something, because I I know throughout this talk, I've kind of floated between referring to therapists or analysts. It's important to make the distinction. Therapists are, you know, there's no license to become a psychotherapist. So so basically anybody could label themselves a psychotherapist, but the way it works, you have to be licensed in some profession like licensed counselor, licensed social worker, to be able to provide services. So you can call yourself a psychotherapist, but you can't really provide services without being licensed. Now, psychoanalysts what separates psychoanalysts from psychotherapists is the training. Psychoanalysts actually have more clinical training than any other professional in the mental health field. It's long, it's arduous, but it's it's. Speaking personally, it's it's very fulfilling. So, so uh, psychoanalysts, you know, it, it's good for people to have an idea. What what is a psychoanalyst and what distinguishes it from a therapist? That's why I bring that up. So moving on to the the Cone lecture, yes, I, I'm I'm excited about the lecture. Basically, what it's going to cover, as you mentioned, it, uh, is going to talk about trauma. We're going to give a definition of trauma and talk about different types of trauma, and then we're also going to talk about what happens very early on, that can be traumatic to a child in those earliest months and years. And and, and part of that has to do with the quality of the attachment experience with the primary caregiver. So we're going to look at that and talk a little about things that can go wrong in that earliest attachment experience that can have traumatic kinds of effects on the child that can be present throughout their lives. So we're gonna look at that pretty closely. And then we're gonna talk about how trauma affects people emotionally, how trauma in childhood can disrupt development and cause a range of problems that can be lifelong if not treated. We're also gonna talk some about how trauma can impact one's physical health. And uh, just just give a little uh, piece from the actual talk uh, to illustrate this. It's been found that people with chronic medical conditions, and this could be gastrointestinal problems such as irritable bowel syndrome or Crohn's disease, it could be chronic pain, uh, immu- immunological problems that result in frequent illness. A whole range of, of chronic medical conditions. What this study found was that folks with chronic medical conditions have a disproportionately high incidence of early trauma in their lives. Well, this, this has been fascinating to people in the mental health field because it seems to make a direct connection between what happens in terms of emotional trauma and how that can actually impact the body. Um, and then we're going to wrap up by talking about how psychoanalytically informed therapies can treat trauma, resulting in healing and growth, as well as reduction of trauma-related symptoms.
0: Hundreds of people would want, would want to hear that lecture. It, when you talk about the mind-body connection, that's um, certainly very different from the old ways of thinking. And it also, I think, is something that so many of us could relate to in terms of, yes, I know a person who uh, encountered X, Y, or Z, and then, and it sort of followed them through their lives, you know, that kind of an idea. Mm -hmm. Um, As I understand it, the Cone Lecture is scheduled for Friday, April 22nd. And as I said, this lecture is open to the public so that the general public, and those with a mental health background are also welcome to attend. This lecture is virtual. Am I correct in that?
1: To my understanding, yes.
0: Anyone who's interested uh, can learn more and also register for the lecture by going to the Institute's website, which is stlpi.org. I would like to ask a I know we're we're getting close on time but I wanted to ask a couple of uh other questions that have come to me as you've been talking. How does a therapist or an analyst understand that therapy's over? You know, how do I know I'm I'm ready to I'm ready to graduate, if you will?
1: Yeah, yeah, good question. Ideally, the end of treatment is an agreed upon thing between the patient and the therapist that they have both come to the conclusion that the work that needs to be done has primarily been done. And it's at that point that they plan for what is unfortunately referred to as termination of the treatment. And this is, this is long before treatment ends, because this phase of treatment, this last phase of treatment, is a, is a time when patients have to deal with things kind of for a final time and to bring up things that maybe they haven't discussed so far. It's, a, it's an important component of treatment because it, it kind of, it, it, it stabilizes the effects of treatment in a sense. That would be the way that a treatment would, would wind down and come to an end ideally. Obviously, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes a patient will decide they're done and quit treatment on their own. It's unfortunate when that happens because they're they're missing out on a really important component of treatment, and that is the termination phase. Kind of adding on to this, it's not at all uncommon for people to come back and resume their therapy with the therapist they had previously at some later point in their life. Either new issues have come up or something that hadn't been fully worked through in the previous treatment needs to be further addressed.
0: Before we close, I would like to ask one question, which is, if someone, someone that you know um, came to you and said, I'm thinking about therapy, what would you say to encourage them?
1: I would want to encourage them, uh, first of all, because it's not easy to take that step. And sometimes we need support in making the decision and following through to start therapy. Um, To encourage them, I would talk about the the, the potential benefits of therapy, how it can leave one feeling better about themselves, better about their lives, and more empowered to live the kind of life that they wanna live. It's also, it also can be very helpful for people that feel like they don't really know themselves well it's a way to better learn about oneself so i would mention that
0: i w- one other question that i have that, that has just come up and this really sort of harkens back to the you know the the freudian freudian model when a patient goes into therapy I, Are they supposed to talk? Uh, Does the therapist talk back? I mean, you know, I mean, are they supposed to just say everything and the therapist just nods? or, Or I don't really understand what a person could expect there.
1: What is encouraged with this type of therapy is that the person speak as freely as possible, as unedited as possible. And the therapist's role is to help them to be able to do that and then to listen to what they have to say, and try to make sense of it, to find meaning in what they're saying that's beyond what they understand about themselves. So as I said earlier, it truly is a partnership, you know, between therapist, analyst, and patient uh, working towards the same goal, and that is helping the patient to better understand themselves and their problems, and to be able to heal and move on with their lives.
0: That's encouraging. And we are, we're closing on an encouraging note. I know that many of the topics that we have touched on in today's podcast could easily be expanded into multiple podcasts of their own. But Chester, I thank you so much for joining me and sharing your insights. It's been a pleasure.
1: Well, thank and- you for having me.
0: And to our audience, I'd like to thank you for joining us for today's podcast. You can learn more about the St. Louis Psychoanalytic Institute, future lectures, podcasts, and class schedules for training. If you'll visit stlpi.org or you can call 314-361-7075. This is Anine Tressler-Hauschultz. Until next time,
1: between you and I.